I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Hey, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. We are back discussing more on construction. So if you haven't heard the first episode, make sure you jump back and listen to that one first. I have this list here, the top 10 complaints about the construction industry. What, in your opinion, would be the top one? From people in the industry or yeah, just was, people outside ask, the industry? From the consumer or from the... Oh, we got you. This particular list that I'm looking at... Slash trying to find. Yeah. It doesn't really clarify. I guess from construction professionals today. From construction professionals today. Yeah. You want to go first, Jason, or you want me to... Yeah, from my side, it's got to be schedule. Okay. So keeping dates, whether that's because of delays with labor, materials, or whatever, but uh, you know, just the issues with scheduling consistently. Okay. So I think tied into that somewhat is cost, which is a function of labor shortage, okay. and to a certain extent, material increases, but but primarily labor shortages. And I would say on the consumer side, they'd say cost too, which is too high. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're. Both missed the mark on the number one, but I believe and those people are and who, incorrect. And, and what's, the <laughs> what's the source on this? <laughs> uh, this is some random. Oh, random. Uh, okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Citizens. Yeah, ignore the people in the industry. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, insurance broker's website. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, what's uh, the number one? Number 10. We'll start from the bottom. Number oh, we're 10. We're listing them. Yeah. Number okay. 10. Ever changing regulations. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, every, Which what is it? Every cost. couple of years, building code changes yeah. and that. Yeah. That obviously has impacts. Or when a city wants to be a little bit different than another city. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or, may I add, the inconsistency of a building inspection. Agreed. Right. So, yes. yeah. so you that's, might have you might check. have a that's building bananas. inspector yeah. that comes out and then that guy ends up that's being on city. vacation. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Like exactly. by a city. They exactly. get these little like yeah, it's bad. So Even then, on the so then the guy's yeah. yeah, so then the guy's assistant comes out and says, Well, I don't care what George said. Yeah. This is this is how we're doing it. <laughs> or the ones where they're on site and they're like, No, this is the code. Uh, can you show me that code? Right. Well you need to look for it. <laughs> but it's not there. Yeah. No, it's there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So number ten, number nine. Number nine, the blame game. Everybody that's, pointing that's like life in general. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. Number eight. People should read the book Extreme Ownership. Jason and I have yeah. both read it. Yeah. It's I don't think I've Jocko read Wilnick. The guy's a badass. Oh, yeah. But it's like probably, in my opinion, he's probably the foremost expert right now on leadership. Like, I think by far. It just makes it just makes sense. And if everyone could live by that principle of extreme yeah. ownership in yeah. all aspects of life, not just yeah. career, but just in your personal life, in your it's familial relationships, in your friendships. Yeah. It's super freeing, it's amazing. too. Yeah. So, anyways, we digress. <laughs> uh, number eight, document management. I don't think that matters. Contracts, change orders, material orders. Yeah, I can see uh, that. Yeah, that okay. it's, that's more of just a pain in your rear <laughs> end. It's about getting yeah. paid. Yeah. That's thing. the problem. Yeah. yeah. I think as it goes more electronic, it starts to get easier with software and stuff. I don't know. No. I feel no? like that just slows down the process and you're finding PDFs and attaching every, well, them and every changing them and got their, like, Every builder's and... got their own system too that mm. they want you to use. Mm. None of them know how to use it or they don't enforce it <laughs> yeah. well. And it's Kinda like... I miss the days of just paper. Yeah. Uh, seven, available cash. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on who you are. Yeah. yeah. Depends on the time. Yeah. Uh, number six, changing minds of homeowners. I don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to matter. It's not rational, usually. <laughs> yeah, to my, my response is, is, what does the contract say? <laughs> what Again, we it's not rational. To? That's what I'm telling you. It's yeah. not rational. What did we agree it's, to? An, it's, emo- it's an emotional uh, relationship. A thing that everything that you're doing is yeah, I, emotional on their end. I totally agree, 100%. And then you throw into this whole concept of like, well, I don't care what I signed or wrote or whatever. I want what I want. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I mean, I get in a lot of those. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, go in the corner and throw a temper tantrum. Like, give me a break, you know? <laughs> Number five, high insurance costs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know in California. Insurance. Yeah. It depends on where you're at, I think. But it's brutal out yeah. here. Yeah, I'm not sure if that... We're gonna... I don't know if that that is so relevant to... The builder, I, I don't know. It, well, I feel like that's I, just a fixed cost. No, but and it's th- just kind of in. The well, numbers. I think, but I think the issue with it is the reason why I would tell you from our side, the builder's so concerned about like our rates and stuff, because then whatever that cost is that we're having to cover is what you guys are ultimately seeing in a proposal. Hmm. Okay. You follow me? So they're yeah. trying to say it's like if you can limit the net, like they look at mod rates all the time for trades, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what your workers' comp and everything's based off of. So if you have a low mod rate. You're going to get a good rate, which means I've got a better price to be able to give you based off of my my costs, mm-hmm. right? So I think the insurance is a big piece. And then I think there was somebody that said last season or whatever that it's we're based in California. Yeah, because our costs in California are way in excess of everybody else, by the way. Yeah. But um, but oh, I think yeah. that's earthquakes. Oh, fires. it's just it's insane. And then we just have California. Yeah. <laughs> so um, but ultimately, I think that's why it weighs into it. It's just so much sure. cost that goes along with it. Yeah. Number four, scheduling. 
Okay. Well done, Jason. Makes sense. Yeah, to me it makes sense. Which also makes like it's cost. So longer you guys can't turn over that house. I mean, what's the carry on a on a lot per day? Right. A few hundred bucks a day. Right. You know? Absolutely. Number three, unreliable subcontractors. So that's the schedule again. Into my labor. Yeah. That's the schedule thing again. Yeah. yeah. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And and laborers walking off job sites to go to others and So yeah. those of you that have issues with unreliable labor on the flooring or cabinet side, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Not shameless. <laughs> Uh, number two, lack of communication. That, I think that's the, that's the schedule. Again, that's well. a life issue though, right? Yeah. Not necessarily a construction issue. Yeah. I yeah. don't even know. Training really is the only thing I think you can do and hiring good people, but. It's a mentality shift too. I yeah. think like at least what we see, like I was dealing with the schedule thing yesterday. The communication is one of those things where you show up to a job and it's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, we're painting the house today. So you guys can't work. So now I've got four guys when we had to like accelerate the schedule, right? Four guys that now I have to send all the way back that now because we're in the state of California, I had to pay for your drive time and do all this kind of stuff and everything else. It's like all you had to do was give us a heads up mm-hmm. and we could have just rescheduled it, recirculated guys, let them go make money for their families, do those kind of things, yeah. whatever. That's why I constantly come back to schedule. That's a scheduling thing for us. That's, yeah. that's a big concern. Yeah. And number one, we've talked about a ton in the past. I'm sure you can guess it just off of saying that. But uh, skilled workers, lack yeah. of skilled workers. It's labor. So if you look at the top four, I it has feel to like do with I won this contest. What, dude? <laughs> I, three out of the four were scheduled. I know, but I feel like three out of four were also labor related. They, no, they are. Labor, it's, both, it's labor and schedule. It's 100% labor and schedule. Which is important. So 40% of the answers on there legitimately had to deal with directly labor and right. schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. So when you hear us say schedule or labor, it's like that's the whole industry issue right now. Yeah. By far. And same for us, a little bit different, but time is, yeah, yeah, just don't have enough time. No, 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 no. And everybody wants it done in less time. You got to like monetize it, right? I want it for cheaper and faster because yeah. I need to monetize it quicker. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So today we have three guests. Jake Sander is a mechanical and plumbing project manager at Broadway Mechanical Contractors in the Bay Area. He is currently managing multifamily and commercial development projects ranging in value and scope of work from rainwater leaders only to full mechanical and plumbing design build contracts. Tim Mueller is a lead carpenter for Pioneer Builders in Port Orchard, Washington. He is a contributing editor to JLC and Tools of the Trade. You can follow him on Instagram at awesomeframers. And subscribe to his YouTube channel or visit his website, awesomeframers.com. And Willard Williams Jr., AIA and NCARB, is a virtual design and construction manager at JTM Construction, which works on a variety of project types. High-rise office buildings, mixed-use apartment towers, museums, medical facilities, parking garages, and retail complexes. Please help me welcome Jake, Tim, and Willard. Full house. This is a first. I don't think we've ever had this many people on. No, not at all. So we should especially cover... that many on a screen. Yeah. So we should cover <laughs> all the bases needed to touch on this topic. So uh, we're discussing construction and the evolution of construction. So we got a perspective of framing, mechanical, and plumbing. And then sort of general construction and the technology side transitioning from 
the architecture to the construction side and kind of how that process is working. So just to set the stage, uh, Willard, you're in Seattle right now? I am literally in Seattle right okay. now. And then They're training. And then <laughs> Tim, That's why I'm home. <laughs> and Tim, where are you at right now? I'm just across the water. So uh, Kitsap Peninsula. Kids, say that again. <laughs> you so, yeah, you stumped all of us in What's Southern the next California. Closest thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're just across the water from Seattle on the Kitsap Peninsula. Okay. Are you amongst the orcas? Um, no, but every once in a while they'll kind of make it down into the passages down okay. down here right. where we're at. And then Jake, you're in. I am at my office shippers in Oakland right now. Okay, Bay Area. Cool. All right, we were just doing a top ten of complaints about the construction industry i won't go through all of them but uh the top four i'll I'll ask you guys before i tell you with the top four general kind of complaints but before we get into that i want to finish up giving a little background on the evolution of construction and to do that you got to go back in time By the end of the 19th century, the construction industry was at the forefront of the U.S. economy and attracted a lot of attention from around the world. Immigrants from Germany, Ireland, Asia, and other countries moved to America and the prosperity of the construction industry was a means to the American dream. However, some citizens wanted to suppress these opportunities for immigrants, and racial discrimination led to unequal wages hostile working environments, unsafe conditions, and even laws were passed to restrict immigration to America, like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Although Chinese immigrants composed of only 0.002% of the U.S. population, many Americans on the West Coast attributed declining wages and economic ills to Chinese workers. Echoes of this treatment still pervade the industry today in many ways. After the turn of the 20th century, the United States entered World War I and soon slipped into the Great Depression. The diversity of roles in construction concrete laborers, framers, masons, steelworkers, roofers, drywallers, plumbers, HVAC, electricians, finishing, and much more uniquely positioned the construction industry to play a major role in lifting the nation out of the Depression. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations between 1933 and 1939 that would be a call to do so. His policies subsequently led to a housing boom as the New Deal sought to stimulate the private home building industry and increase the number of individuals who owned homes in the United States. The construction industry includes civil projects such as dams, sewer systems, and infrastructure, commercial buildings including apartments, offices, retail, hotels, schools, and public buildings. However, this move would ultimately shift residential builders to account for a significant portion of the industry today. The Federal Housing Association subsidized builders to mass-produce homes and lessons from the growing automotive industry began to influence the building industry. Construction now had new benchmarks for speed, efficiency, and cost-effective construction, building at a rate of 30 houses a day. 
society largely embodied this culture of faster and cheaper, and by the 1980s and 1990s, speculative development, deregulation of the financial sector, and a growth in international financing led to a property boom. This growth positioned the industry to be an indicator of the overall health of the U.S. economy, characterized by cycles of growth and depression. Its prominence and continuous growth in the economy was bound to evolve the business of construction. I have not met a client today that says, Hey, Paul, there's this land development cost estimate. We're getting into your schedule. You know, get back to me when, you know, it's convenient for you. <laughs> no. It's like, here's not enough information. Make it work. We need it yesterday. Go. And I'm sure that's the same way with the architects. That's the same way with the civil engineers, with everybody in our, in our industry. Why? Because time is money. And uh, these projects cost a lot more to do and to develop. So they have to borrow much more money. They pay interest on that money. So I completely understand. But at the pace that they want all of us to go, it's not just me. It's, yeah. it's not just the architects. It's everyone in our industry, the contractors, hurry up. Some home builders will take an unrealistic schedule and shove it down a contractor's throat. And they're just expecting us to move as fast as we can. But oftentimes that in itself creates errors and a cost overruns and uh, sometimes lawsuits. To understand more about the various areas of the industry, I reached out to different trades to tell me a little bit more about their roles. Paul Moot, owner and principal, and Brett Perrine, also principal, of Moot Companies, a land development consultant company in Orange County, California, gave me a lot of great insight into land development and the evolution of the business of construction. 90% of your problems are on the perimeter. Poop needs to flow downhill and it needs to connect to something. And typically projects have three problems and they're drainage, drainage, and drainage. And this gets back into the previous comments about thinking like a raindrop. Am I coming on to your project from off your project? Well, you have to deal with me. Do we capture it and clean it up? Well, we really don't want to do that because that can be a lot of water. So that could be a separate pipe that runs that water from off of your project. It doesn't land on it, but it's running through it in a separate pipe to the low point, and we don't add our water to it. So then we have a separate system, and it's back to who's going to hold me and who's going to clean me up before I leave. So this becomes a real issue in land development. The other thing about the, the geological study, California is a land of complex geology. We have things like alluvials, colluvials, terror strains, topsoil, landslides, liquefaction issues. We snuggle up next to earthquake faults, you know, like that little one called the San Andreas Fault. So another key point is, is a geological investigation. Okay. So, Outside of contract and liability, is there something else that kind of comes to mind of how you've seen the, the land development side change and then maybe even the, the larger building industry? The biggest thing that's, that's impacting, and I, and I will say this in a positive way, has been the use of, uh, of GPS. Hmm. The ability to track quantities of dirt as they move around a project on a daily basis or even an hourly basis where you can accurately pay for the amount of dirt that you moved, properly identify the exact location of a sewer line or a storm drain line. The technology that is out there uh, today 
changed our industry and it continues even today to change our industry. So, On top of that, one other item to think about, and again, it's in a good way as far as from the environmental standpoint, from a, but from a developer side of things, the cost standpoint is the requirements and regulations on water quality and hydro modification. And what that means is essentially rainwater that hits your site needs to be held and cleaned and released at a certain rate. So that's one, a big added cost in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, not to mention it takes up a lot of your land buildable area. So you might think you build 100 lots on day one, but when you go through the entire process and the planning process, now you might only be able to build 90 lots because they have a big water quality basin or some other facility. That was never a concern back in the 70s, 80s. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> it wasn't even so. a thought. <laughs> and then when it did become a thought, we just uh, took out a spray paint can and said, drains to the ocean. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, when I first started here, it wasn't even a thought. Yeah. Um, I remember my first uh, environmental fee was called a, a um, fringe toad lizard fee, which was out in the um, Palm Springs area. And then we got into the uh, Stephens kangaroo rat. And now there's butterflies. There's even fly mitigation. I want you to tell a story about uh, your sound wall you had to build for the birds to for that overcrossing <laughs> down in San Diego. Okay, so this was uh, in El Camino Real. But what time period is this? Uh, this was uh, 20, 20, 2013. Okay. And we had to build an animal crossing in, in the road. But... On one side was a federally protected wetlands of the road, and the other side was a bird sanctuary. So we needed to get started, but the the birds needed to have babies. And you can't create too much noise during construction, which we were going to make a lot of noise. So we put up a temporary 15-foot high plywood uh, sound wall and then draped material on it to absorb the sound, and then we put a monitor, a, a human being with a, a, a sound gauge on the backside to monitor the amount of noise we had. And if we made too much in an hour's time, we had to take the next half an hour off. And then we could go back being noisy again. And that sound wall and all that was a total throwaway. Do you um, remember what that cost was for that wall, roughly? Uh, I think that was north of $40,000 all in and out, the rental of the pads and then mm-hmm. the the guy to sit in his car and go check the meter, mm-hmm. you know, every so often. So back in the uh, 70s and 80s where the fees may have been, you know, 15 line items, today they're close to 60 line items. So you really need to know what you're doing, where you're doing it, and what fees, you know, apply to that. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We are paying fees so that we can save these species and, and move them or just not build there, you know. Uh, this is something that we need to pay attention to, and we are paying attention to it. And the construction industry is cleaning up the environment. We're cleaning up our sins of the past as we redevelop these uh, projects and, and clean them up. El Toro Marine Base, for example, uh, we're cleaning up the jet fuel that was all spilled that got into the groundwater. So land development, in that sense, is a good thing. You know, these are all very yeah, good they're things. They're all very like good things. It just adds more cost to projects. Right. That, that's... All the stuff, as Paul is saying, from the 70s and 80s, they're all good and positive. It's just the costs have increased, which increases the home prices, which everything increases. I reached out to Tammy Voss, an electrician and general manager of TSS Electrics, 
a commercial electric company in Australia. We're mostly in the commercial industry, so we're mostly working for universities and doing uh, refurbishments and installations. And as far as primary and secondary users, is there anything that you guys have to deal with? Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely a lot going on at uni. You've got your students, you've got your staff, and then you've got, um, you know, just cafes and all your hours you're not allowed in places and just working around everyone that's there. So it does get a little bit tricky and it's a bit different to just your normal, you know, domestic house or construction site. Safety is one, uh, obviously, we've got to make sure everything we're installing is practicable and safe. Uh, you can't, like, people might request a PowerPoint next to a tap and you're like, well, we can't do that. And then you have to explain to them why you can't do it and give them alternative options to what they actually want to use it for. So safety is always one people don't realise how dangerous it can be to install something in the wrong place, as well as just thinking about how they actually want to use it in the future. Uh, is it going to have to be accessed all the time? Is it going to have to be, is it something we can kind of hide away because they're not going to worry about seeing it? So, yeah, it's just depending on what they want and if it's practical, if it's safe, it definitely it always gets considered on every job. Another fascinating part of the conversation revolved around the evolution of the workforce particularly the growth of women in the industry and the use of Instagram to normalize women in construction. I was quite nervous about how I was going to be received. I had to get a lot of confidence and start, you know, being comfortable in myself and being able to just stand up for myself. Uh, it's definitely changed over the last seven years. I think the industry is a lot more accepting now to actually women in trade and women in the industry. But as general manager, obviously people didn't think I had enough experience or I wasn't sure of what I was doing, but I quickly had to just prove myself and say, you know, I know what I'm doing and learn all the managing roles, all the financing and all of that stuff quite quickly. But I definitely got a lot of confidence out of it. And I've ha had a lot of respect from people since I've actually, you know, jumped in and shown that I can do it. Yeah. And it's, it's been a real journey. So I'm really happy with it. Outside of your company, how is it dealing with when you show up on a job site and dealing with people that don't know who you are and haven't had day to day working with you? Most of the people think I'm like the personal assistant. Um, where, where's, where's the boss? And it, it's kind of nice coming in and going, well, no, that's actually me. I, I know what's going on here. And once you actually gain that respect from them, they will appreciate what you're doing and be comfortable with you doing the work. At start, they're a little bit like, oh, we haven't seen this before. But, you know, I can do my job just as well as the next male also. I think that it's just gaining that respect from them and that initial shock, them getting over it and just them being comfortable with it as well. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution of women entering trade? And I see on Instagram, there's like tons of women that are really taking up the mantle for trade. I think you guys call it trade. Uh, what is it? Tradies? The Tradie Lady Club. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> just talk a little bit about that and sort of the the movement you guys are sort of spearheading. Yeah. Yeah. Perf uh, when I started, I didn't know any other tradie lady. It was probably like the last year I've started to get involved and start seeing a lot more women jump online, use social media to help younger women actually get accepted into the industry. Before it was just you know, one or two women would give it a go. But now we're, we're out there in force. We do a lot of promotion for tradie ladies and a lot of companies are starting to look at us and, 
men are starting to accept us and share our stories as well. So that's also inspiring a lot more uh, women to actually give it a go because before there was no support for us. Like we'd be in the industry and we'd be struggling with things and nobody would be there to help us because the people that are supposed to be helping us are the ones that were kind of putting us down. So, yeah, it, it's really it's a really good community and all us girls can get on there and talk about what we need and start changing things in the industry like women's clothing. There, there was no women's clothing for tradies when I started and rangers have finally started uh, releasing some and actually working with us to make sure that we're comfortable in them. So it's been really good. Yeah. Now, do you think there's a higher standard for the quality of work that you have to do? Com- Unfortunately for some, yes. <laughs> I've noticed over time that women are obviously a bit more perfectionist and they like to do things a little bit differently. And um, you really have to be confident in that. If you want to go in and do something to the best standard, you need to be confident with it and go and do it. But, yeah, there's definitely a little bit of pressure for us not to muck up and, you know, we might get a bit of a harsher sentence if we do something wrong than men. And I think that's just depending on who you're working with and what area you're in. Hopefully it changes and hopefully they start realising we're just we're just the same. But I think that's just, you know, people accepting it and transitioning into it being okay. <laughs> As the industry continues to evolve, new challenges and opportunities are influencing the direction of its future. Green building is influenced by climate change and social influence. Workforce evolution has been stimulated by labor shortages, robotics and automation, immigration, and an eventual infusion of women and minorities in leadership. Building quality and methods moved by disasters and global health crises. And improved delivery methods and productivity has been prompted by technological advancements of BIM, AR, and VR, collaboration software, drones, job site cameras, and wearable devices. The evolution of the construction industry has and will continue to be a story of human advancement. Construction was a process that began simply as a function to mitigate the effects of our climate, but has emerged as so much more. From temporary primitive huts in open plains, to structures that have a spectacular span and reach unbelievable heights. Pioneers from all walks of life have contributed to the evolution of this industry. I think I would like to end with a comment of, again, anybody in the audience, especially a young person in the audience, if I would encourage you to get involved in any aspect of the construction and the land development business. I, I think it's, it's the future, it's very dynamic, and there are so many different facets to it that it's just a great place to to learn and to grow. And, and like I said, there is this gap between the 60s and the 30s that's gonna get filled, that's gonna get filled in. It's a, you know, it's a great time to, to, to join in and get, get your education, get out there, get a job, get, get some experience and, and join in and, and, uh, and hang on because it's gonna be a great ride. <laughs> What do you guys find to be sort of the top complaints from your perspective about the construction industry? Uh, Jake, you're on our screen, so you want to start? I was going to say, I'm happy to kick this one off. It's something (laughs) that I'm dealing with right now. It's something I deal with on almost every project, especially when it comes to multifamily construction. One of the biggest problems we have is as a plumbing and mechanical contractor, we participate in 3D BIM coordination on every single project. And the biggest issue that we have is lack of trade partner coordination. 
you know, it's not always necessary for framers or the structural contractor to participate. And, you know, it's not their fault. It's not a contractual obligation all the time. It is for us. And uh, when we coordinate down to an eighth of an inch, and then we've got joists that land wherever they kind of feel like comes a little bit of a difficulty when we're setting our fixtures and we're roughing in our waste and vent water piping. Yeah. Tim, in your world, what, what tends to be kind of your biggest complaint? We are super fortunate because the subs that we work with, we've worked with for years. So the communication is really easy, including our engineer. I can text Harry and get answers to questions pretty quick. I would say that it's probably the labor shortage. If we wanted to grow right now, I don't know that we could hmm. because we'd be finding people that we just, we don't know if they're qualified. And, and the other thing is I would say customers. <laughs> uh, most built spec for the last, well, since dad started, but building custom got us through the recession. But as soon as we could and the market got good enough, we just went back to specs because people are so, they just don't understand. And so they watch something on HGTV or they look at Lowe's and they say, well, that switch costs, you know, $2. Why are you charging me 15? And it's like, because we have to pay general liability insurance and equipment and all of this stuff. And you can't get that through to some people. And it's really frustrating. Yep. And everybody knows somebody that does it from an uncle or whatever else, right? No, it should be six bucks or whatever. Yeah. Sure. We run into that problem heavily because we're a union contractor. So our labor rates are pretty much dictated by the union. Yep. And trying to justify those labor rates sometimes becomes really difficult. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Willard, on your, from your perspective, what, what tends to be kind of one of the big complaints or issues? I, guess um, I think the biggest issue is, like um, Jake was saying, is uh, coordination with all the trade partners, but more uh, with the architects and the design team. Because we are doing all of our uh, projects in BIM, the architect tends to be a little bit uh, nervous about sharing their models. And, um, and then they you know, want to give you these uh, indemnity clauses where they're you know, not responsible for the inaccuracies of their model. And it takes a, a lot of uh, trust or we have to build a lot of trust with the architects and the engineers to be able to use their model and then they start to understand that the process is in their benefit so that's probably the hardest thing that we have to deal with it's just building that trust with the design team that's funny i so, sent those uh waiver forms and indemnity <laughs> clauses <laughs> yeah it's uh, i think l- the litigious nature of the industry that has kind of overwhelmed everything is uh another thing that has shifted the threat of litigious nature <laughs> yeah, the, yeah every time yeah, yeah. Wait, so on the requirement for constant documentation for fear of the litigious nature <laughs> yeah, of projects no, totally true so for all our non-construction listeners um can you just maybe give a definition of what bim is Will happy it, to do that yeah. so yeah. bim stands for building information modeling and it's basically a 3d design of the entire building on all of its structures, services windows Plumbing, piping, mechanical piping, air handling units, booster pumps. It's basically a, a way to build the model, build the building in 3D before we build it in real life. Is that pretty uncommon or most uh, is that? We happening? do it on every single project. You guys do it on every, okay. Yeah. What about yeah. industry wide? Yeah, that's pretty it's, normal. Yeah, it's it's more so in the larger scale projects. Yeah, um, yeah I wouldn't expect it in single family homes. Yeah, or I was going to say home long. builders aren't doing that at all. But. No, I think some are trying to go that route, but... Uh, the 
it's much faster for like the single family detached homes to do those in CAD um, because there's a lot of, from what I understand, it's a lot of build up for a BIM model and you usually can't turn it around as fast as they like you to. So do you use CAD, Demetrius? I use CAD yeah. right now, yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, it may not be necessary for some of those smaller projects. The reason that we do it is when we're doing multifamily homes or commercial buildings, we've got you know, distribution piping on a floor that'll take up an entire six foot wide corridor with six pieces of six inch copper pipe running down that corridor and ductwork that has to move all that air. So it becomes a, almost a requirement for us to do it. Otherwise, we'll just never fit all the material into one space. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So I'll tell you guys real quick, the top four we figured all have to do with labor slash uh, timing what was the labor scheduling yeah, yeah yeah so number four was scheduling number three was unreliable subcontractors <laughs> number two was lack of communication and number one was lack of skilled workers so uh I think everybody's kind of like yep yeah pretty much <laughs> so now let's i wanted to work back through and if you guys could quickly describe uh what it is that you do um and sort of explain to the audience uh, you know, what, what a framer is and for people that aren't in the construction industry or curious about wanting to get into it, but we'll start with, uh, Willard, uh, talk a little bit about what you do and kind of, uh, what your role is. Yeah, I'm uh, the VDC manager. So that's virtual design and construction manager for JTM. So I manage, um, the trade partners, basically their assets uh, in the digital environment. So taking in their BIM models, um, conditioning them and making sure that they have the right information. So I create uh, clash groupings and, um, you know, I'll run clash tests and coordinate between the design team and, um, and our trade partners. Um, and then I'm also responsible for kind of the R and D of our company and, new technologies and emerging technologies, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, because, you know, BIM is kind of this um, more, I guess, important piece of construction nowadays that it has a lot of metadata in it. Um, there's a lot of uses for the information that we're building or creating. Um, so understanding kind of that, uh, that stream of uh, information and how it can touch all the different uh, departments within our company. Um, so it's kind of a, a larger technical role. Uh, Tim. So as a framer, our job, at least in single family, is basically build the structure. So <laughs> the floors, the wall, the roof, uh, we hang the windows. And in our company, we self-perform siding and we do our own foundation work. And sometimes we'll do some concrete flat work, depending on how busy the subs are. But that's kind of what we do. And so it's basically, we're in a seismic zone here. So it's not just that we're building so that everybody can put their, their trades, the trades can go in, but it has to be a little bit more technical now because we've got a lot of earthquake hardware and you have to think ahead a lot more about that kind of thing. So sometimes as an example with the mechanical and plumbing trades, there's just certain things they're not going to be able to do because we have the seismic concerns, but that's, that's kept really to a minimum. It's not, we're not too complicated with the things that we have to deal with. Jake. Sure. So shortest way to describe it is my company is responsible for providing water to buildings, removing wastewater and rainwater from buildings, providing proper venting for all the fixtures, also providing supply and return air. To go a little bit deeper, that could be anything from gray water collection, which is where you wash your hands and water that goes down the sink, 
providing water to all the fixtures like toilets and faucets and whatnot and providing air conditioning. What tends to be the most complex part of your work, Jake? Yeah, so um, that depends on the type of contract that we have and the complexities vary. So if we have a plan and spec project where we're not responsible for design, sometimes the most complex process is validating the design from somebody else. We're running into lots of situations where we may have a split air conditioning system that has a heat pump on the roof and a fan coil in an apartment that supplies conditioned air. And a lot of times what will get overlooked is the ability of that heat pump to overcome the elevation differential. Mm. And so what we end up having to do is spend a lot of our time in our engineering department to validate the design of these pieces of equipment. Now, if it's a design build project, it's the other side of that same coin where we then take on the responsibility to make sure that the design is 100% proper, 100% correct. It also becomes a little bit difficult if we make a mistake somewhere on a design build project. We can't go after any money for somebody else's mistake. We have to eat that mistake at our own cost. Whereas with the plan spec project, we can go after cost if somebody makes a mistake. And so I guess it's all one coin. Making sure that the design is 100% correct for the building is the most complex process. Hey, Jake, what's more common? Is it for a mechanical and plumbing subcontractor, do most Mm -hmm. of those firms do the design in-house? I would say it's probably 70-30 plan spec to design build. So most contracting companies are going to accept a plan spec project because they probably don't have an in-house engineering firm. Hmm. Our engineering department, our company right now, we only employ two full-time engineers. So we can only accept a certain amount of design build projects at once. A lot of our work is plan spec and, you know, there's benefits to both projects Mm -hmm. from a contractual standpoint. Jake, the coordination between the field and the design, how is that? How is that exchange? Yeah, so it's a pretty specific process, actually. So the BIM process is a long, drawn-out process where we coordinate a floor at a time. Uh, That could take anywhere from two weeks to two months to coordinate a single floor. From there, that coordination model gets generated into our shop drawings, right? Mm -hmm. Our shop drawings is what's going to actually be built in the field. Those shop drawings get submitted for approval, and once they're approved, we give them to our field team to then review one last time before we actually go and install. So what we build in the 3D model gets put on paper, gets approved by the architect, by the owners, by the general contractor, and then our team gets that. And there's always an open line of communication, whether it's through me or directly from my general foreman to my guy that detailed it. Okay. The way that you guys have it set up, you don't get a lot of, hopefully not get a lot of calls from the field, like this is not working. You would hope not when you design things down to an eighth of an inch, but you'd be surprised how many times things just flat out don't work. (laughs) It's a lot different to build something on a computer and have it exactly right. I mean, versus going out in a field and if somebody puts a stud that's an inch away from where it was in the model, that may create a problem. Yeah. Okay. So you, that's the problem is not being able to control others work. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Which brings me to Tim. <laughs> Tim, what what tends to be the most complex part of your trade and um, kind of issues that you're trying to resolve out there in the field? You know, we've got it, it pretty well dialed in now where the designer on the plan, he'll, he'll spotlight plumbing fixtures and we can see if the joist needs to move. Yeah. We just did a job where a warehouser provided the eye joist and... They put all these details in it so that let's say that as the framer, I'm laying out and I realize that joist goes right down the middle of of a um, drain pipe or toilet. They write in their plan that any joist may be offset up to three inches. Mm -hmm. 
which makes it easy because in the old days we could just kick the joist over, but then maybe an inspector would call that out. Hmm. So they're very proactive in that it's already on the plan. So we can just show them. Nope. They said the design allows for up to three inches or whatever it might be. The, the complexity is not actually building anymore. The complexity is trying to get it through building departments. Yeah. You're saying that earlier. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the labor shortage has even affected that. We build in one County out here in Washington that we're like two weeks out on inspections. And that's because that department just won't get with the times. Hmm. What do you mean that get with the times? Hire enough people and they, they'll, they'll only do so many inspections a day. Yep. Yeah. And I'll talk to the inspector when he comes out and he really only had half a day's worth of work. So he'll just shoot the breeze and we'll talk, which is good for the relationship, but it's like, but when you need it's something, really hard yeah. to schedule because we can't control weather or equipment breaks down or something. And they show up. I have a good friend of mine as an example. He called down to see what time will the inspector be out. And he said, afternoon, perfect. We'll be ready for him. Well, he decides he's going to come out first and they're not ready. And then he kind of gets upset with them for not being ready and wasting his time. And he's like, no, we had it all dialed in. So you just can't dial things in when, when you're two weeks out. Do you want to call that individual out on the air? <laughs> no. Um, what county are you in again? <laughs> yes, I do. Let me let me rephrase that. Yes, I would love to call him out. But it's just, it's like, okay, then we'll just try to figure out a way to work around it. So as an example, that same inspector came out and just got all upset and decided to do an on-site plan review. And my brother's meeting with him and he's like, this is already stamped and it's built, you know, there's no code violations. Yeah. But he didn't like the look of the way that the excavators yeah, had yeah. put their spoils. Well, thankfully, I was able to take a drone picture, send it to the engineer. The engineer said it's fine, and we could send it to his boss. And so within an hour, everything was good, and we didn't have to cancel concrete. But that so, whole process cost you an hour. And, and while you're doing a drone footage, you could have been doing other work. And, and that's, that's it. And that's so that's where right? we've tried to be really easy to work with. But there's things like that that are costing real hours in real time. And so... We'll just start pushing things, you know, in other words, it's like, well, who's your supervisor? Can I have his number? We're just not <laughs> going to argue. And it's like, cause, cause it's a, it's a, we're small. We're only doing a few houses a year in part because we can't really do more with that kind of a mentality. And so as our time needs to get more valuable, then it's like, okay, we're not going to mess around with this. If we have to, you know, send letters and things like that, we will, but that's, that's kind of the exception. That's not the rule. The other County that we're building in, we, I can call the inspector and he'll swing by on his way to lunch. I mean, so there's the, it's just, you know, whatever you want to say, like a different culture. Yeah. Okay. Willard, uh, what tends to be the most complex part about your side? What you're, what you're working on? Initially, when we start projects, it's a lot of cat herding. So we're um, trying to get everybody on the same coordinate system. We're trying to make sure that everybody's, um, you know, producing information at a rate that is sufficient for us to meet our schedule. And then I think another difficult part, like, is looking for the right things within the model. So, for instance, we have this 22-story building we're getting close to finishing, and uh, they're putting some mechanical units on the roof, and they have these 18-inch pipes for the uh, chillers. And there's a drywall model or a miscellaneous steel model and um, because one of the king studs wasn't labeled correctly it got missed in the clash detection process uh -huh. so they have these i mean huge pipes in this wall and now we're having to re-engineer parts of the wall so that these massive pipes can get through 
So it really, for me, the difficulty is like making sure that we're looking at the right information and getting everybody on the right page. So you would be a good one to lead off this question on the technical side. How have you seen the industry evolve from your perspective? Well, I guess we went to school together and uh, I think you can remember me using BIM like in 2004 or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I know that uh, the industry has changed a lot, but I guess I have been on the edge of that technology for the longest period of time. So I haven't really seen too much of the change, but I've heard stories. Um, and I can see like some of our trade partners, like, you know, it's their first rodeo on a, you know, a huge project and they have, you know, just started like literally just opened up Revit or something like that. And then they're trying to learn how to use it mm-hmm. or train somebody to be able to understand what they're producing. So it's, uh, it's interesting in that part, but yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to work with some very advanced uh, contractors and you know, architects, architecture firms. I think one of the stories that um, really kind of cemented the, I guess, relationship that I've come across within technology is at the last um, contractor I worked for, they built the uh, Experience Music Project, which is now called Mopop, which was designed by Frank Gehry. And the kind of the director of the department was like a project engineer when he when they were working on it so it was their first bim project in like 2001 or something i don't know like 1999 and so uh we were doing a renovation on it and i was lucky enough to be able to pull up the three-dimensional model (laughs) from frank gary's office and see how rudimentary it was and how scary it was back then like it was crazy but yeah so for me technology has kind of always been a part of my career and part of my trajectory so um so it's i guess i haven't seen it the evolution as much as like others who have been working like on uh light tables or but it's evolved in that as far as the technology front it's getting better every year and the usage right has sort of yeah adoption is increasing uh steadily every year but it's you know like for a contractor like us we um you know we put it into our our contracts or subpart or sub trades uh that they have to use it so we don't like working with trades that can't leverage the technology because it's just a liability uh in the field for us i mean if we have to go back and do a bunch of rework and mm-hmm. you know that affects our schedule and because projects are increasing in complexity and then also decreasing in duration, you know, we have to use these advanced tools. Okay. Tim, on the on the framing side, how have you seen uh, the industry evolve or heard from your dad? You know, it's hard for me to, I've been thinking about that since you mentioned that earlier. We build houses basically the same way as they've been built for, I don't know, 50 years. Hmm. The exception would be is that we fully sheet the walls now for seismic or for high wind. And I, I would say that the biggest thing now is the focus on energy efficiency. And so the technology is like when you used to wrap your houses in paper, now manufacturers are making panels that have the integrated water resistant barrier mm-hmm. and we tape the seams. And so that kind of thing for us has sped things up. It is less likely that we're going to make mistakes. And it turns out that it's actually safer to install, yeah. but it's still a little slow in being adopted because people they're still kind of thinking in terms of the 1980s. 
<laughs> I just always think it's interesting when you ask a question like how you're building houses. Ah, it's been about the same for the last 50 <laughs> years, but then yet, you know, three minutes ago, we're talking about how advanced the programs are now and being able to get all these things on board. And it's like, you kind of look at it, it's like, how much rope slack do we have to keep pulling that trailer behind us? You know what I mean? Like it just, it never catches up. As far as on the field side? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's so far behind in that matter. Tim, has there been any conversation uh, within your company or uh, just in the framing world about this movement to um, yeah, penalize and modular construction? Yeah. It, I mean, it comes up, you know, it seems like it gets pushed every few years and the articles come out and, and somebody will go and, um, you know, tour a factory. We had one lumber yard here just before the um, crash that decided they were going to start panelizing. We did one job with them. And the problem was, is that the guys in the factory or whatever you want to say in the lumber yard that were pre-assembling walls clearly were not framers. Hmm. So all the little tricks to make things fit better, they didn't know. And so nothing fit. Uh, I mean, we ended up back charging a lot because things weren't done properly. And I don't see, I think part of the reason why it hasn't changed much in my industry is because it wood is sustainable and it's very easy to work with and it's very easy to design with. And a lot of those design principles are time tested now as we have earthquakes and hurricanes. And so there's little tweaks like, um, uh, Simpson strong tie will, will manufacture hardware that's easier to install. And the materials we use are so they're just everywhere. Like here in the Northwest, I mean, warehouser does such an awesome job of planting their forests and then harvesting them. And then some of the materials we use like OSB is such a good product. Even here in the rain, we have a house that we basically has been underwater for three months and people on Instagram were freaking out like, Oh, what are you going to do? Is the house going to dry out that house? You would never know it was in the rain. Now, if you walk through it, so the materials themselves do so well. And now that they're doing such a good job of using fast growing trees to make some of these engineered woods that are stronger, more dimensionally stable, they hold up better than things like plywood in years past. It's just a good way to build. And the longevity of the buildings will just keep getting better, especially as we manage the elements better. So it's like the technology side for us is, is more along the lines of how fast we can communicate versus 25 years ago. Wait, can I, can I call a pause on fast growing trees? Like, yeah. like I have never heard that term before. Like, can you, can you elaborate at all on what you mean by that? Yeah. So, um, I've talked to a couple different manufacturers. So for example, like, um, LP Louisiana Pacific uh-huh. makes a siding called smart side, yep. which I believe the strands that are in that are made from Aspen and Aspen grows very fast. And so if you go to their YouTube channel and you watch the process for that, that particular siding, the pieces of the tree that they can't use go into, um, heating and cooling their building. So like the net effect of being able to plant those trees, they grow fast enough because you don't need them to be super tall. You, right. They don't have to be super straight because they're going to get cut into chips and then glued together. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's just, it's that kind of thing that it then huh. means that you can manage the forest better. It means that the carbon footprint of the factory itself. And then, then for us in the field, we're working with a wood product. So there's no special tools. Um, it's not like a cement board, which is very, very harmful to the environment. I mean, cement's pretty yeah. bad as far as CO2. Yeah. So it's just, it's that kind of thing. Interesting. Very interesting. Jake, on your side, how have you seen or heard of the industry evolving? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the boring one, which is <laughs> document control. You know, with the evolution of technology and online applications, it's there's a much different way that we control our documents, our RFIs, our submittals, our schedules between the GC. And that line of communication has gotten much simpler because a lot of that is relatively automatic now. So that's the boring one. But in terms of design and what we do in the field, especially on the plumbing side, 
there's a huge push towards a heavy amount of efficiency, specifically related to water reusage. Mm. Most of our designs now, especially in commercial buildings, and a lot of times now multifamily buildings, we're seeing a much larger use of rainwater and gray water collection and recycling that water for either irrigation usage or if it's rainwater, possibly even back towards fixtures. So that's been the big push on, on our side of things. The use of uh, energy efficient air handlers um, and seeing how the building envelope design has changed to make the, the ability to use smaller air handlers in larger buildings, creating just much higher energy efficiency. Hmm. Okay. So our society is rapidly evolving. What do you guys see as sort of the societal change about perception or anything about the industry that has changed the, your focus and how you guys approach your work? Uh, Jake, you want to? Yeah, that? sure. So uh, one big thing that we deal with a lot now is the focus towards local government to use and employ local labor and small businesses within the community. What this does is drives up contract costs, sure. which is which is totally fine. But uh, for example, one of the projects that I'm doing right now, we're using a insulation and fire stopping subcontractor that's very small local business, and their prices, while they may be 15 to 20 percent higher, it's a contractual requirement for me to hit a certain percentage of my dollars on the project to use small and local business, and it stimulates the local economy and it grows smaller businesses and it diversifies the ability for us to go to different contractors. So I think it's a great thing. It's kind of in the the, the growing pain stage where nobody's quite sure how to properly manage those extra dollars and the and the possibility that those small and local businesses aren't able to handle the volume of work they may be getting them. So it requires very close management. But yeah. that's that's the biggest societal changes, like the local governments wanting that influx of money for projects taking place in their precinct. Hmm. Tim, what about you? Here in this region, Seattle and King County has gotten so expensive. And a lot of people don't like the rules that the Seattle City Council it can be at times, it, it seems like it's um, a little myopic. And I think people are starting to see that they don't really want to be in Seattle. The homeless crisis has gotten out of control Yeah, in Seattle, where when we go over there to a ball game or go out, just go out to dinner, it's, I mean, it's really sad to see the tents everywhere. And I think a lot of people are just kind of sick of it and they're trying to get into the outlying areas. Yeah. And then you also mentioned uh, earlier about the push for sustainability I assume you guys are having to go to two by six walls a lot. Like, I think that started in the early eighties or mid eighties for us. Oh, yeah. Really? That's been a staple oh, wow. for many, many years. Wow. Interesting. So what will, what will change for us is with the energy code and air tightness is getting your blower door numbers down. So you pressurize the house. What's the air leakage. And they, I think right now we're supposed to be under five and then come the summer will be under three. We're, we're typically hitting right around two, two and a half. So we're all ready for that. You know, that's been kind of the fun thing is to figure out ahead of the curve. How can we do that kind of thing? Yeah. More insulation, wrapping the house in insulation, some of those kinds of things to make the house energy efficient. The sustainability part of it, it is kind of a big thing. You know, I, I spend a lot of time on Instagram with other builders from around the country. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's been overall a very good thing because it exposes us all to ideas that are unique to other climates. Mm. And then you can adapt to your local. And it's kind of raising the bar across the board. My uh, father-in-law worked in energy conservation for years, and it makes sense. Like, if we can save kilowatt hours, we should save kilowatt hours. That just makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of it sitting in the parking lot when it's 100 degrees with the windows down and crank the AC. Yeah. 
Like we just know this. And so it's nice to see that more and more people are understanding that they can kind of give back by just trying to conserve. And that for us, that starts at the building and the building envelope. Yeah. You know, one of the things that my company does is we build all electric townhomes without gas. Do you see that at all in, in your respective markets? And do you think that's yeah. a trend? Do you think, you know, do you think that becomes more commonplace? I do. And like here in, in uh, Washington, you know, Governor Inslee ran for president. His big thing was climate change. And a lot of that has trickled into Washington. Um, Seattle City Council, same thing. I think they're trying to pass or they did pass additional gas taxes and they want like all new buildings, including commercial to have no fossil fuels. Wow. And we're seeing that like um, locally, we're doing a lot more mini split things that are um, extremely energy efficient. I think right now in the houses that we're building, the only thing that might have gas run to them would be the oven and a fireplace. And then they're almost never used, <laughs> you know, at <laughs> yeah. least as far as the fireplace. That's funny. We have a fireplace now and we haven't turned it on once. I use the heck out of our gas. I so do too. I oh my really. gosh. We love <laughs> our fireplace. We didn't even know it was something we wanted when we bought our house. And now it's like, couldn't imagine living without it. Yeah. Jake, what about you in uh, in the Bay Area? Have you seen that kind of shift towards getting rid of gas? I'll be honest, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the multifamily buildings still use gas ranges, um, still have lots of fireplaces, especially on like podium levels. They do gas barbecues. But we do do a lot more mini split systems that are much more energy efficient than having massive air handlers and stuff like that. We don't typically do gas-fired water heaters anymore. Typically, the water heaters are all electric at this point. So I guess... I guess I should revise my answer. Kind of yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. For a lot of the bigger equipment, yes. But for a lot of that in-unit stuff, we don't really see a huge change there. Okay. Willard, have you seen anything in society start to shift what you're doing? I think the biggest societal change, I would say, is uh, probably working with designers. I mean, I think that you know the perception for a long time has been that contractors are kind of these knuckle draggers and you don't really know what's going on. But um, I find that Why the, are you looking at me? <laughs> I find that the, the design team is like pretty blown away when they start to see how intricately we're putting these buildings together before they're constructed. But I mean, you know, being in this Puget Sound region, I, probably the biggest societal change is that, you know, these huge buildings are coming online. I mean, there's so much construction in Seattle, Bellevue, Redmond. So we're just seeing these mega projects just rolling in all the time. So that might be a little scary because I guess growth is great, but, you know, kind of the single family, smaller uh, development, I think is getting pushed, like Tim was saying, further out, like to, you know, Kingston and Kitsap and all these outlying regions. I mean, it, if you were going to compare it, it would be like if you were building in downtown LA yeah. and then all the single family kind of projects are getting pushed to Ontario or, you know, somewhere on the outside of the, the region. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of multi family high rises, luxury high rises, luxury, you know, buildings. Um, so I guess that's the biggest thing I've seen up here. Yeah, we're definitely densifying across the board, I think. And yeah, the only single family projects are pushing out to super, super far away. Dude, even those are like the amount of communities that are coming out around us that I'm looking at right now. Like even in the areas where you'd say, oh, okay, it's still affordable single family. Mm -hmm. Man, it's like that whole air gap house, you know, 
single family, zero lot line thing or whatever it is, but oh, they're yeah. all townhomes basically. Yeah. Everything's still townhomes. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we're densifying, but only to a certain extent. Um, we're not densifying necessarily unless you're in a very, very urban, you know, San Francisco setting or, or Santa Monica setting, but you know, getting into like a podium type of construction, I think is pretty uncommon, mm-hmm. especially in the for sale space. Yeah. Uh, again, unless you're in a very, very urbanized area, yeah. uh, because the co- construction costs just have been they've they've increased so substantially over the last you know seven to ten years that it, it well, just becomes a, cost prohibitive it's such a long-term play too i mean you just don't know with the market as volatile as it is you know when when or if you're gonna be able to get your money out of it like that's the other issue when i was well, talking to different builders that they were referring to it's like it's just it's having money in the ground for way too long that's just it too right so if you start a podium building you have all of your dollars in the land development and the construction of yeah. the project and you don't get a single dollar out of that until the entire project is done right, because yeah. obviously you can't issue a certificate of occupancy for one and close yeah. and close a unit and start yeah. getting your cash flow uh, back in the door if yeah. the building is not 100% complete. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, it, not only is there the construction cost issue, but there's also an IRR issue. We've seen a couple of uh, ownership groups up here in San Francisco be able to get partial certificates of occupancy, and they've basically really? been able to phase their move-ins. Um, one of the last projects that I did was near AT&T Park. That's on was, Podium Project? Yeah, it's a Podium Project, yeah. Well, there's they, they ev- there's to, evolution right there. That's, I mean, that's Yeah, that's it was really, really interesting, interesting uh, while we were working on it. You know, of course, the roof had to be watertight. We had to have all our air handling units completed. We had to have all the waste and water done. But they were able to be working on interior finishes on the upper floors while wow. they were phasing move-ins on the lower floors. Okay, and so we, the- hadn't, we hadn't seen that before. And basically what we had to do, we had to split up the site for construction entrance versus ownership yeah. right. entrance because they didn't want – people that were owning of their million course. dollar condos to see our dirty plumbers coming in. And out, you, <laughs> but you know, know what? what? I mean? To be honest, that makes all the sense in the world. So if smart. you can if you can fully construct the bones of the building, right? right. Where it's like you said, a watertight well, roof and all of the The shell's usually done before you can go interior anyways. Well of course. That's of absolutely course. right. You have to have it watertight yeah. before you're gonna be putting drywall up exactly. otherwise you risk getting but if, mold. Exactly. But even if you have everything in the common areas behind the wall, so to speak, that's not obviously a construction term, but done. And now you're just trying to outfit you know, a hundred interior units with, with uh, countertops and cabinets and flooring mm. and things of that nature. Why not allow exactly. partial Exactly. And this one closers? was even larger than that. It was 351 units. So they were really, and, and, and I'm not joking, these were roughly million dollar condos. So when you're talking about 350 units, if you can get 20 units occupied early, it's that's huge. a huge cash flow influx. But that's the was, difference between we, a project working and not working, truthfully. Yeah. Right. Do, do we, do you know, was it something they had to go and get specifically done for their building? Or is it something that that city's kind of looking at as kind of a go forward basis or a new way of them? You know, I wish I knew the answer to that because that's it'd be really interesting yeah. to note that because we're constructing another one uh, right now that's just south of it. And right now we don't have a TCO schedule. And it'd be very interesting to see whether or not it's one single TCO or if it's phased. Because you and I both know from the from the trade perspective how gnarly that gets at the very end. Because oh, you've gosh. got like a deadline for the very last <laughs> unit. And it's like if you don't hit that deadline, all 350 other people are screwed because of that one That's house. right. So I mean, You're worried about liquidated damages at that point. Oh, exactly. So I think it gives you a lot of flexibility in a lot of ways above just making sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Was that city of San Francisco? It was. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we have a, about 50% of our projects are going to be phased occupancies with really uh, multiple tenants. 
And I think it's really a fire code issue. So like you really mm. just have to be able to turn the sprinklers on and get those running yeah. and they have to be on, you know, all the systems have to be up and running, but a lot of our owners are doing that on their projects. So it's really just a kind of a shell and core and then figuring out where you're going to have fire separation between the different uh, occupancies. And, and Willard, that's up in Washington state. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. We, uh, it's not going to happen in California. <laughs> well, it's happening in San Francisco, but, San Francisco. Oh, you but just that'll that. be... San Francisco, yeah. I was thinking Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. That's maybe something that we should be Looking watching. Into. Yeah. Like yeah. BIA should I mean, that's be kind of a, that that, Yeah, that's somewhat of a game changer, really. Yeah. I wanted to double back, Willard, you mentioned the perception about construction and brought up uh, Instagram. And I think people are starting to be interested in getting into the the trade work and the trade world, especially women that are starting to enter the the trade world and using Instagram to really push that message of women getting involved and uh, construction is becoming cool on Instagram. There's like people that have channels and YouTube channels and it's starting to build this, uh, this following. Have you guys seen any of that or um, know of anyone? I know Tim, you mentioned you're kind of in the Instagram community. Yeah, it's um, it's it's been very cool. Locally, I have not yet seen it, but then again, we're pretty small. So, like our electrician, he brings his daughter. I don't know if that's the the route she's going to go. I worked with a young woman who was a foreman on a on Union site. Outstanding. The, the the Instagram thing has been very interesting because it has kind of elevated the trades, mm-hmm. and there's been the the big push is women in the in the trades, especially like Canada and Australia. Yeah, and it's really cool to see because. They bring something, it's a different mindset. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of us, you know, I'm 42. I would say people my age and younger, I mean, I heard some real horror stories from, from one woman. We were at the International Builder Show. I mean, it's it's not that way anymore. It is in, in a lot of places, but it seems like the acceptance is there. It's just raising the awareness that that, that is a viable thing for, I, like a good friend of ours, she's 18. And she's thinking she's going to go to tech school for HVAC instead of going to college. Wow. And I, and she is so detail oriented that she would be such an asset on any crew. And she's so easy to get along with that. I really feel like a lot of people it's, it's the right time to promote that because it can be a very viable career and it doesn't matter. Like in the past, I think we looked at construction workers as you had to be these rough and tumble men, (laughs) right? You know, like you think the pictures in the, in like way back of these guys building the uh, empire state building. But the in- emphasis on safety and, and all of that has changed the culture, I think, to a degree now where it's viable for women to go into that well, career. I think the other thing we, we need to do to like, not even just for ladies, but it's important for ladies, but your point with the trade schools, like y- you guys all know, you know, I've got plenty of guys on my teams that make a hell of a good living. And I'll tell you, they make a whole lot better living than a lot of people that went and got four-year degrees and even master's degrees. You know what I mean? It's hard work, but it's a freeing type lifestyle and at the same point they make great money mm-hmm. and they enjoy what they do you know it's something we got to get that message changed but i agree with you like on our on our cabinet side the ladies that we have they do the best damn detailed work and they're so organized and i'll tell you what the gals that we have in the plant hmm. man they push those guys <laughs> i mean those guys do not want to be caught behind and they are phenomenal we just promoted a couple of them i mean they're doing great it's it's fantastic to see it's interesting you're saying that because i think over the last few years maybe two to seven years, that's been a hot button issue and part of the labor shortage and challenge that I think the industry has faced, which is 
the technical schools or the mm. trade schools uh, aren't common. And the push for young people to go into, you know, a, a, a trade as a career really hasn't been there. It's mm. sort of like, well, you either go into a four-year degree or you don't go at all. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think there's been a fallout of young people that are actually going into, you know, the construction industry. So if, if you're seeing that start to change, I think that's great. And hopefully that changes, you know, some of the labor challenges that our industry has been facing over the last few years. I mean, as dumb as it sounds, like from a perspective in that situation, you've already cut out half the population. Actually, I think larger than half the population, there's more females that inhabit than males of what's available. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like, if we can create a message that can open part of that gate, you know what I mean? I think not only are we going to see quality and design and a whole lot of new, you know, wonderful ideas, but now you've got a larger and larger workforce that, that can make a big difference, big difference. You guys should, uh, if you haven't, you guys should go on Instagram and check out. You can just go trade by trade, and you just start to see. You see this wave of people that are using Instagram to elevate the construction world, and they have a lot of people that are following. And because everybody, like Tim mentioned, everybody kind of gives tips about their local area, and you can kind of flip things to, to how your climate is or just see how somebody does something uh, more efficiently. Um, so there's this whole push that I think is elevating the industry a lot more. So Willard, Jake, did you guys have anything on that that you've seen? Yeah, the only thing that I see is that the, it's, it's the messaging. It's the lack of knowledge that going to a union is even a possibility. Hmm. Um, I've only ever specifically worked for union contractors, so I kind of only know that side of things. I'm not as familiar with the non-union side. But if you talk to the vast majority of the population, they're not going to even understand that that are working on these projects or the HVAC techs that are working on these projects went to a union, which is a trade school, and they have no idea that the living that they make is an excellent wage living that's mm-hmm. higher than average. And exactly. somehow finding a way to package that up into a message that you can get into some exactly. get to a younger person is a difficulty that we have. And I'll tell you the truth, I actually don't see a huge social media push in my industry at all. Mm-hmm. I don't we don't use that at my company. I don't see it. It doesn't come up on my feeds. It's not something that we even really talk about. And that's part of the problem. And that's Agreed. part of the messaging issue. Yeah. Agreed. We need Trump to start talking about the trade. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that just might get too many just, people angry up here in San Francisco. But yeah, that's true. But it might get a whole lot of notice too, is what I'm saying, right? No such thing as bad press, right? <laughs> right. Willard, uh, you were going to mention something? No, I mean, my whole team is uh, women. So who rules the world? Girls. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. And then social media. I mean, we use it and my previous company used it a lot. So we're really active on social media. Um, yeah. I don't know how effective it is, but yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that social media converts quite for business uh, per se. Just oh, yet. I totally disagree. Really? Oh, I totally disagree because there is so much BS in the media these days. People literally are going to social media for what's happening with like, you know, the current yeah, situation news. we're dealing with. What's that? For news. For news. I mean, it's lit- and nobody knows what's right or wrong mm-hmm. because it's just somebody running their mouth. Like there's legitimately 
no better channel these days to get information out. Than well, I'm talking media. about well, I'm talking about conversion to actual business. I think it's still a little rough. There's a lot of people that will follow you and just kind of watch, and it's a long term process of building a relationship and showing your expertise before I think it actually converts into someone being in a position that they want to take on a project and call you for that project. Totally disagree. Uh, I totally did. Okay. <laughs> I actually have. Can I, I jump have, in on that? Yeah, go yeah, for it, please. So that was kind of our take too initially is my Instagram account. I started as kind of a joke for our local friends. Mm -hmm. And now I'm up to 95,000 followers. My brother, I think is at 14,000. Yeah. And what we found is that like in our industry, we rely a lot on real estate agents mm. and they don't really necessarily know anything about the actual construction. Correct. So now people can see, like we had um, a Navy guy that bought our house last year and his dad was a retired builder from New York. And so we hashtag every project now and we try as we go, yeah. we'll we use that hashtag. He just thought it was the most awesome thing to yeah. be able to watch that project from yeah. the day that, that the, the excavator showed up all the way through. And, and we're finding that real estate agents then can tell their yep. potential customer, well, go check out their accounts. I think you'll find the yep. reason why this house costs more than the competitor huh. is because of what you can't yep. see behind the walls or behind the drywall. So we're finding that it's actually, you're right, that it did take a while. Yeah. But now that people are more comfortable yep. with it, and I know for me, it's a great learning platform. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it turned into something nobody really foresaw, but it is it is benefiting us. And that's been our reason why we've kind of pushed it is to get ready for the next downturn. You know, we made it through the last one and the one before that. And so- <laughs> Let's get ready for the next one. And part of that's going to be reputation. Yeah, for sure. And that's and that's why I think whether it's right or wrong, what you're seeing, mm -hmm. like nobody really knows, right? Because you can't get behind that veil curtain until you really have that. But they can, they feel it's, it's the new way of feeling like you know that person. And, yeah. and, and there's been like psychological studies. People legitimately feel like they have a connection with the person that they're following. Yeah. Which is kind of bananas yeah but we're also really <laughs> ignorant if we don't pay attention to that and utilize it to the best of our capabilities and and i would tell you a lot of us including myself and for the companies that we do because we are very quiet mm -hmm. on that stuff probably not very smart <laughs> yeah. in doing that at this point you know what i mean so it's interesting to, to hear you say that though that you know it's actually helped you guys a whole lot i mean especially i would say you know from a spec custom builder standpoint mm -hmm. i could talk because it's your portfolio at that point yeah yeah you know what i mean and that portfolio it's not having to sit down and get in front of somebody anymore they can literally search you out mm -hmm. and see what you're all about and start feeling like they understand you you know what i mean yeah the cust the the custom home builder <laughs> presence on instagram has yeah. blown up yeah. as yeah. has I think designers, you know, interior designers, yeah. landscape designers. Oh, for sure. I mean that that is gangbusters on on Instagram. Well, and the funny media. part is most of them are, are garbage when you really meet them. I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude, but when they put up the pictures of the things that they do and the angles that they take and the picture it, I mean it looks amazing. Yeah. And you're like, "Oh man, they're fantastic." You know. It's it's it, but it's interesting. So the yeah. people that they go and they find out that they sit with where it's like, "Oh, this they really know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. that spreads even further. Yeah. I totally agree that it's an invaluable outlet and resource, but I don't want people to get the misunderstanding and think that I'll start an Instagram account and I'm going to get all this business. It's it's a long play. It's definitely a long play game. That's true. So we're up against it, but I want to run through one last question with you guys while we have you. If you could give advice to one trade or a designer, what would be your advice or suggestion to make your job easier? Just one? 
Um, Just to condense the answer. I guess guess you could throw in a few people if you want. No, I think that um, the big one is to uh, start trusting the model more. And I think that we as a industry need to have um, uh, a method for converting model data into contract language or contract documents. So because I think that everybody, if they're all working in the model and we can get rid of paper drawings, <laughs> we're going to be in a lot better space in the future versus kind of this um, archaic method that we're dealing with now where we print paper from a three-dimensional, highly detailed model. So that would be my only kind of suggestion is just trust the model more. Okay. Tim? You know, I, what I, I think I would come back to is trying to be as easy to deal with as possible mm-hmm. and not be yeah. like argumentative or abrasive. Yep. But the more that lines of communication are open, and I'll just use our engineer as an example. He's far smarter than me and more educated, but he'll listen when I give him a suggestion. And we all just are like, the day that Terry fully retires, we're all just going to like, let's get out of the trade completely because <laughs> he's just been so amazing to deal with. Yeah. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't get upset. He stands his ground. He'll put me in my place and educate me. And I, I just love him for it. I just think that the more that each of us tries to be easy to deal with, then there's going to be problems, right? We can't, can't avoid that. Absolutely. So trying to get him tackled without too much blood. <laughs> that's a good, uh, that's a good tip. Jake. Yeah. I'd love to piggyback on what Willard was talking about and, and, I'll disagree a little bit. We're never going to be able to get rid of paper drawings. And that's for the simple fact that the guys in the field are going to have to have them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we've tried giving guys iPads before with drawings and it just doesn't quite work. But what I do 100% agree with is that I think all trade partners should be required to do 3D modeling. If one trade partner is doing 3D modeling, I, be- I fully believe that all trade partners should and that that would alleviate the vast quantity of conflicts that we have in the field. And then the the 2D drawings that we print out and give them 36x42s are generated straight from that model. And when there's a conflict, we can go fly through the model, see who's right, see who's wrong, see who needs to adjust. But only having a couple of trade partners participate in that 3D coordination while some are not makes it really difficult for those of us that do. And when we run into conflicts, you know, we can't fall back on that model as much as we want to. So, mm-hmm. What about augmented reality, though, if uh, all the guys in the field have that the augmented reality glasses on. and you're saying instagram's not a good outlet you want to go into <laughs> augmented reality everyone and the, and the model the model's Jeez. fixed on the site you don't think that could get rid of paper completely it's like hey, Brad the, Pitt. you gotta freaking run before you can crawl huh? Right. yeah maybe why don't we just jump straight into that my only question would be what if you're uh, going up a ladder with your augmented reality on you start bonking your head on the ceiling <laughs> that's interesting okay guys interesting to see yeah Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you guys uh, jumping on with us, Jake, Tim, Willard. Cool. Thanks very much, you guys. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. You See ya. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us 
and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. Um, it was created uh, and envisioned by an architect, and her name is Katrina Spade. And she was going to architecture school in UMass, and she was working on her thesis project. And she uh, began to become interested in the idea of uh, human composting as an experiment. And so I f- first met Katrina um, about five or six years ago, a friend of mine who was actually a, um, a designer of, of memorials and uh, tombstones in Seattle, among many other things, he's an artist. Uh, he said, you really have to meet this woman. She has the most interesting idea. And so I invited her down to Folsom Kunduk studio and we had a cup of tea. And I don't think she drinks coffee, if I remember correctly. And we, uh, we just talked about her idea. And I imagine much like probably uh, the three of you listening to this or, or the people out there, when you first hear the notion of when you die about um, moving into human composting or becoming organic soil, I think people go into a kind of shock. I think in the first place that they go in their own minds is, um, would I do this? Would this be good for me? And that's exactly where I went. We were having a cup of tea in our office. I was like, it seemed like such a, a radical idea. And at first, um, it, it, I, I began to wonder if, if, in fact, I would be capable of doing that. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. architecture firm owners and emerging leaders. Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLamey, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, 
shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.